In this episode of the show, we speak to Stephen Morris-David about having a higher level of social consciousness. Stephen Morris-David, welcome to the show. So we're really, really glad to have you on board and talking about pretty much uh, lots of things, but the biggest one is probably self-consciousness and awareness. Welcome on board. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an interesting topic and um, I hope that we have a good conversation and lots of good things come out of it. So, although I, um, you know, use the, your full name there, um, you know, from a family point of view, we almost like never refer to you like that. And uh, so as a backdrop, um, Uncle Mori is, uh, is actually um, my wife's uncle. And the first time I met him was many, many years ago. And at first glance, I immediately knew, you know, this was obviously someone different. So I'm really glad to unpack this um, in terms of the story. And just looking at his life, and I mean, he's got quite an interesting one. And I think the purpose of the show is, is to talk about those in terms of how we become better. And I'm sure you're all going to gain a huge amount from this. So, um, so Uncle Murray, give us a quick backdrop in terms of what you currently um, do and a little bit in terms of uh, how you started on the self-awareness path. That's a tall uh, kind of order that goes a long way. Let me just start with where I am at the moment. Um, I'm living in the United States at the moment, and I live in a small university town that's called, you know, Lafayette. And it is located in West Lafayette. Um, the name of the university is Purdue University. And it is in the um, slightly, you know, north of Indianapolis, about an hour's drive. And it is a Midwestern town, a Midwestern state, about two and a half hours south of Chicago. Um, so I've been there for a while. Um, I've, I left to the, go to the United States in 1992, and where I went in to go do a master's degree, stayed and finished the PhD, and uh, met my wife there. And uh, by that time, things had got pretty complicated in both, pers both, both my personal life and also globally um, in South Africa and elsewhere. And um, the short thrift of it all is that it made a lot more sense to remain there and do the kind of work we did. And um, it offered the best possibilities for that. And um, of course, a lot changed from the time I left South Africa, both in terms of myself and both, you know, and, and uh, you know, the life that we were tending towards. So the other thing I do know from um, Uncle Mori is that he's um, very modest, to say the least. <laughs> Let me give a, a little bit more of a backdrop. So he was, um, he started in the, so, so for those that don't know, I mean, in the apartheid era in South Africa and uh, from an early age, he, he always knew that something had to be different. Um, and that's what I kind of gathered from it. And, and I, I talk about the first time I met him. The first time I met him, um, my wife now, uh, but at that time we just started going out and um, is Ingrid and she mentioned, you know, you have to meet my uncle. And I remember we're going to a jazz club. Uh, well, supposedly it was supposed to be a jazz club um, somewhere near the Durban Harbor. And um, he spent most of the night with us. And at, at first glance, I thought, that's pretty interesting because not many adults do this. And um, even recently, I mean, we had a family gathering over the weekend. And Akumori would spend 
a lot of time with the youngsters in terms of just talking to them, hearing them, and inevitably always giving them some words of wisdom or some direction <laughs> around it. And, and that kind of sums it up for me in terms of how I experience it. And uh, so I have to ask him, I mean, like, have you always had that inclination to help people be better? I don't know. I don't know that I had a charitable inclination. Um, I think it is just something that that comes naturally. I'd like to believe that um, that this tendency is far more a human tendency rather than an individual one that you uh, make a conscious decision about. And I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, uh, um, you know, the apartheid um, era in which I grew up. I, I grew up, I was born in 1952, and that was like, you know, four years when apartheid, after apartheid was instituted. So I think that I was one of those generations, you know, um, that was right at the very beginning of things. Of course, I didn't know anything about it at the time. But um, from the very early years, I think uh, I had the inclination that Things were a little more diverse in our society than when I was born and, you know, we moved into different areas because my father was able to speak Zulu. My mother spoke Zulu and was able to understand people. My grandparents were also, and my grandmother could speak Zulu as well, and they spoke a smattering of English and, of course, the, you know, the various Indian languages. From which I gathered that mine was probably the first generation where people were as separated as we were before. But as to the inclination of, um, of the kind of social relations we have with other people, it's not so much as um, kind of helping other people, but I think that our own experiences in a lot of ways lead us along um, you know, uh, a human kind of trajectory and journey. I think that what I did was from the early years was simply try to do something that I, some sense of the good thing, the right thing, um, the thing that, you know, that one can live with, you know, in a sense. But that is never ever something that's set. I think we know this intuitively from our parents, our, you know, the relations we have with neighbors around. And the strange thing is that we always, you know, we get a sense of um, feeling warm and feeling good and feeling thankful when people treat us well. And, um, you know, and when people do not treat us well, if they, you know, a little under the weather, a little angry or frustrated about something or the other, and if the tone gets a little, you know, um, not as, as warmly friendly, then I think you begin to feel, you feel a little pain, you feel a little emotional pain. And I think in the very early stages, we have simple emotions, you know, the whole spectrum of emotions. We have simple things like like, dislike, love, hate. And then much later, I think that our, uh, I guess after adolescence and so forth, we become aware that there is a whole spectrum of feeling. There's a whole spectrum of how we are with things our consciousness begins to shift in a way. At first, we feel greatly inadequate about that. I remember feeling that, yes, I, I hate something or I love something, but what that actually meant, where the feeling was located, was difficult to 
put your finger on that and touch it. So these became complex ways of for me to grow. Um, but remember that the whole inadequacy was not so much as what I saw outside, but so much what was inside me, you know, in a way, a kind of feeling that I needed to locate these things. And is this the, all there is? And then, you know, the shades of meaning, the shades of feeling uh, in that whole spectrum in between. I wanted to feel that. I wanted to get a sense of that distinction, you know, in some ways. Um, it was always there in the sense that I did not feel that the simple like and the simple dislike was enough. And I think a lot of times, I think, uh, um, you know, my attachment with people, my fondness for people, um, had to do with that kind of trying to find out about things. And that, for me, was a way of improving who I am. Of course, I didn't know this then, you know, when I was a child. This I look back and, you know, uh, with the kind of, you know, what, years and experience brings and my consciousness now of, of things that happened in the past and how it was is clearly narrated by, by more mature eyes that are, you know, fueled by what I think now and what I, and what I think now and all my experience allows me to see things that I then possibly could not see. Um, but there's a sense in which that the ordinary conditions of, you know, interacting with the society and feeling, you know, the communities around, the friends that you have, through all the aches and pains, the, you know, the good times with it, the bad times, um, the warmth and the kind of cold shoulders and the rejections, which is part of life. But all of that, you know, um, it lies there, but somehow you are able to, they are always in the immediate kind of things. But as we do the ordinary things, there is a sense of growing. There's a sense of improving who we are and what we are. And inevitably, I think that um, that movement, the movement itself becomes so important um, for how we see ourselves, for the kind of meaning we give ourselves. Um, so that, in a nutshell, Ollie, is, um, you know, um, what kind of, um, you know, made, give me attachments. And to young people generally, um, I'm very interested in what is going on now because our times change. I remember thinking at the time when I was a teenager that the older people, in a way, had, uh, had given up the kind of struggle, had given up lots of things, and we're not putting in, um, you know, at least we're, we're in vibrant parts of, of the conditions of, that we were living in. And yet I know that that is not true because in their time, in the ways, in, in, you know, in the years, the people put in lots of, you know, sacrifices, their strengths, their efforts, and so forth. But there's a sense that I learned then that each generation comes along with a consciousness of that present time and they always struggle and always are committed to doing something that we then called improving society because we saw our, our self-improvement as part of improving society. And I think that is why Young people attract me a lot. I, I'm interested in learning, you know, what they have to say. I'm interested in learning what they know, their consciousness at the moment, 
And uh, for me, this is vital um, because this is the world um, you know, we all live in. And uh, not just the cliched sense of this is the hope of the future or something like that. But I'm genuinely interested in how their humanity is unfolding because the story of humanity is not limited to one generation, nor is it sectioned off in that way. The, the story of humanity is one thing, it's one huge story, and it's not separated by time, past, present, or future. I like to think of it as the ocean, you know, that has tides and, you know, times that there are gentleness and ripples, and so there is a, a waxing and a waning, you know, of sorts. And I think that it is, we are in that ocean and we, as a, as a humanity, as humans, we have the sense of this kind of being in that way. Um, and so in that kind of flux of life, you know, it is an honor, I think, and a privilege at this stage of my life to, to sit with, you know, young people and, and, and who are at far greater and closer in touch with the contemporary conditions because they're growing in it at a young, tender age. And so I get the feeling that, you know, I just love being with them and knowing what that is. Um, it is part, it's a time that I've gone, you know, it's passed in my life. And um, as much as I liked it then, and I liked, you know, what I see in young people today, I do not want to go back to that time. I don't hang around with young people because I want to feel young, no. I love feeling old, older, old. I love old age because I think there are incredible opportunities for me to grow as a person. Uh, opportunities that is never available at other times of your life when you were younger. Every stage of our lives, I think, offers us possibilities of self-growth and, and improvement of who we are. And in the stage of life where I am right now, you know, and uh, perhaps, you know, it's that kind of last generation that's, you know, on stage and then there's an exit through which you go and there's no coming back to another scene. And so, but the important thing for me is that at this stage, what is, there are things that are available for me to grow that was never available at any other stage or time of my life. And therefore I feel that that is important. And one of those things is that through the eyes that I now have, that inner eye through which I depend on knowing and seeing and interpreting what's going around, with that eye I have a chance to, to look and learn about teenagers today, which in that time of my life I had neither the wisdom nor the experience to see what I was then. And so now it is, it, is, it is so wonderful that I have the opportunity to listen and talk and, you know, feel what they are feeling, knowing that they are growing, that they are improving, no matter what, you know, in that sense. And to know that, in a way, is um, it's a different kind of intimacy, a social intimacy that, con that connects me to people then, as, as it connects me to people, you know, of my own age or other kinds of stages of people's life. But this intimacy comes from what I'm learning. I'm learning about them and I'm learning about myself vicariously and looking back at the times when I was then, at that time. So I think that more than anything um, 
helps me and all underlines why young people mean so much to me. Mm. So I, th I think I, l I love hearing you say that. And um, I must admit, though, it's something that it seems like you've always had, because when Ingrid talks about it, she talks about, you know, Uncle Mori taking all of the children out, um, you know, to the swim swimming pool or to the beach and just almost like making time, you know, for them. Um, so it's something that, you know, you, although you say it's in your old age, but it's, it's almost like something that's, that you've always had, it seems. And, uh, and that's, that's really commendable. I think the one thing I do take away from young people is that, um, that sense of excitement, that sense of like optimism and just like energy around it. You know, it's almost <laughs> like the world is ahead of them or maybe it might be oblivious, but I find like mm. in your thirties and your forties, you kind of like mellow a little bit. And it's almost like you know better uh, or you mature into it. Um, but it's something that, that for me, it seems like um, from, from the stories I hear that you've always had, you've always had that, affini you know, that affinity towards spending time with young people. Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, I, yes, I think so. You know, uh, mm, yes, I love the energy. I love the energy. And what I love about it is that um, as sensitive as egos are when you are younger, that you have, you know, the, you know, haven't yet, uh, you know, um, developed a rough skin about things, but it doesn't last long in a sense. And then there is also something charming about that level of kind of, you know, sensitivity, but the, and which allows for that enormous kind of energy, you know, that you feel that young people have. Um, I think that more the kind of personalities that this allows to develop and also at the older times you, of course, you know, all the adolescent young, young kind of energy um, brings on the sense of power, you know, and your body's really up, you know, infused with that kind of sense of power, with that phenomenal growth of yourself in that time physically. Um, but there is also an attendant, um, you know, mental shift in people's minds and so forth. And, um, you know, at the time that I was, you know, that I was teaching in, in Cape Town and Port Elizabeth and then in Cape Town and I'd come in, come home during the holidays. And um, it was painful, first of all, to leave home and go far away. Um, but in my life, it, I just felt it was inevitable. And of course, there are other uh, you know, that's another story we might take up at some time. But I think that the singular thing that, um, that I didn't decide on, I simply loved and simply, you know, had to, had to follow, was that I, I've, I suffered the kind of loss of distance of not being able to grow up with my nieces and nephews and the young people in my family and the children, you know, from childhood and so forth. And I only had these times in, during the vacation, uh, you know, and so I'd come and um, I wanted to grow with them and I wanted them to grow with me. I wanted to have that kind of you know, not to take care of them or, you know, or the kind of, or just spend time with them. To me, it was important to grow with them and for them to know that they grew with me at some point in their lives. That, that, that familial intimacy, a social intimacy, 
which is also a fundamental human intimacy. I think that that is what that is what filled me, you know, at that time. And I could come here and spend that that amount of time with them and take them and go along. We all would go to, you know, go on trails, go to the swimming pool. Didn't matter about, you know, what we, uh, you know, preparing loads of food or something like that. Just stop at a shop, buy a couple of loaves of sliced bread, a tin of, you know, fish and, you know, or cheese or something like that. We have a knife, you know, with us and just take it and go along. Um, I think growing up in that kind of, growing together with that kind of spontaneity, that spontaneousness that didn't worry about this or that or preparing things in advance, that was an appeal. It appealed in a way that there was no script for this. It was just simply there. It was hanging out in this fashion. But more importantly, I got to know them in ways that they relaxed with one another the ways in which they relaxed with me, the ways in which, you know, they could do things all around me with no fear or with no self-consciousness, you know. In other words, it was a, a kind of freedom that we, that we engendered in ourselves. That for me was an enormous sense of growing, you know, and I love that, you know, about that time. And when I had to leave, I... Always, it was always a hard goodbye, um, you know, to go back. And then, um, of course, it slips into the background because you are overtaken by all kinds of concerns because your concerns don't stop, you know, uh, just at home. Your concerns and, and interests take you, they walk with you, you know, every step of your life, wherever it takes you. And so... Um, there is no, there's nothing about that leaving that inhibits the person that you are, that you're growing. And so, you know, and the good thing was that you always knew that you're coming back on holidays and coming back at times. And then it, at the same time, it's wonderful. And this is, there's a part of regret in a kind of way. And you come back, you know, six months later and see how much, you know, everybody has grown. And of course, they don't, can't recognize that because they've been in it all the time. And Perhaps I have also changed and I've also grown, but learning that and seeing that and then even with the kind of regret that you went there, you know, and be part of that. Um, but that was good. I think it was good in a kind of way because it was able to make me see things that I wouldn't have been able to see had I been there, you know, all the time. And I think the same thing for them. I think that you know, when the ways in which my nieces and nephews think of me and think about me, I think that that distance allowed for some level of objectivity, some level of focusing, a keenness and an interest in this person that is so much part of us but goes away and then comes back and then you see, you study and you're able to discern certain things that's different from all the uncles that have just been here who we because of the you know of the constant being together and familiarity we no longer notice we no longer notice the distinctness the growth and so forth because 
we know them there all the time, all around. It's like the kind of thing that you go along to a friend all the time and, you know, you pass the post box, you go past the thing and go inside. And then, I mean, you may do this like dozens of times, it's so familiar. But somebody asks you, so what's the address of this person? I don't know. I know the street name, but I don't know the house number. And yet you walk past it, that post box, every time that you've been there. It's that degree of familiarity that doesn't allow you in sometimes to notice things. So I think that going away and coming back allowed us that kind of distance in a way, temporary as it might be, but to look more keenly, I think, and, uh, and isolate distinct, very important things. Um, and those important things then become, you know, part of this wonderful way of growing and, and improving in so many ways. So what you're saying there has so many different uh, parts I can go through. And, you know, the one thing I want to do is bring it back to what I started um, talking about in the show. And that's, I think there's a, there's a need for uh, positive impact of other people as you growing yourself. And I think there's definitely a need for thinking of life and generations in layers. Mm -hmm. As in you build on the previous one or you build on, you know, with yourself. And I think what you said there is so true or, or it resonates for me because what I take from there is that you are still able to build your own path and your own life and be, the, you know, the best person you could be and the strongest person that you could be while impacting others positively as well. Mm. And I think so often, you know, we, we get stuck in this trap. And to be honest, I don't notice it as much, but I definitely notice it with maybe, you know, a previous generation where people would always say, I live for my children. And I, and I mean, I've heard that even in our generation or in my generation, you know, where people say, I live for my <coughs> children. And I find that um, quite interesting because one, for me, I want to be the best version of myself and I, I want to, bring out positivity with other people as well. And if I could do that, then you almost have the best of both worlds. And, and whenever I, talk, I, I thought about having a show like this, um, that's the reason. And I think when, when we started talking, you know, while you were on, on holiday in South Africa, I thought, yeah, that's a story that must be told. And, mm -hmm. you know, the more you speak about your experiences of your life, it kind of resonates with that same idea that we want to mold people, you know, we want to mold lives but at the same time, you want to build, you know, and be the best version of yourself. And, uh, you know, from your many stories, the one thing I took out of that as well is you were very um, conscious, you know, and I'm sure there were many trade-offs, <laughs> but you were definitely conscious of the decisions you were making, you know, going to Cape Town, going to Port Elizabeth, there was a consciousness about that. There was, and then coming back, you know, to spend time with the nieces and nephews, <laughs> there was a consciousness about that. Even where you are right now, um, you know, I didn't introduce you properly as well, but, mm. you know, Akamori is, it should be Dr. Stephen Morris David, you know, because he's done his PhD, you mentioned masters, but it's amazing with that even, and even when you, when you do that, you do that with such humility that, um, you know, it's a, it's a story in itself, but I, I like how you put that because for many people, I mean, we spoke about, you know, the PhD and postgraduate stuff, for most people that is an end to itself. But I remember what you said is the PhD is just the start. And I thought that was interesting. You know, no one, no one speaks like that. 
And when my wife, um, Ingrid, always spoke about, you know, Gomorrah, it was always with the same level of like reverence about it, you know, as in mm-hmm. you think deeper about things. And I thought by having you on the show, you know, we, hopefully what we start casting the light on is firstly, you can be a better version of yourself, which is what you should be doing. And secondly, you can carry people along, you know, for the journey. Not just, you know, not just your, your children, but maybe your nieces, maybe your nephews, maybe mm-hmm. people around you, maybe people that you work with, um, maybe friends, maybe family, but that's completely up to you. And I think, uh, do you have any thoughts of that? Does it kind of make sense? Absolutely, Oli. Um, Oli, I think that this, this notion of, um, of something complete and... Um, is, is incredibly damaging in our, in our lives. I found this out a long time ago. I found that, you know, we are constantly becoming. And to do anything very often at any stage of our life, we need to free ourselves from the rituals and the kind of things that, are, that enable a lot of things, but they also restrict us and disable many, many things. Um, I grew up in a family that was very close in a lot of ways, in spite of not having much. And, um, but there was, you know, a lot of filial closeness and filial love. And, um, and I know that within the extended families and everybody else, that the idea of going away was anathema. Nobody goes away, in a sense. All that happens when somebody gets married, you just add another room to the shacks that you're living, you know, and um, and you're expected, you know, um, in which cases, you know, you had matriarchs that ruled the entire place and so forth. And um, growing up and getting married, I remember that they used to give, you know, people had a 21 uh, birthday party and handed over a key. And that key was so significant. But I also found out afterwards that that key didn't get you any serious freedoms, you know. You're still, you know, um, girls got the kind of women got the key, and but they still were dominated by their fathers as to where you go and what you do <laughs> or anything like that. And um, for men, of course, they have a little more freedom, but it also is constrained by what the family needs and what everybody does there. That is, there is a lot of warmth in that. There is a lot of nurturing. There's a lot of goodness in that. And so it enables a lot of things. It raises confident people, people that are strongly, firmly on the feet in what they know. But it also prevents them from seeking, moving into the areas where they do not know. Being able to go into places where everything is strange. And this growth that we have within ourselves doesn't lie within the grounds of the familiar. We are constantly becoming to be complete in any sense when things do not grow anymore. That is a point of death because it does not grow. The very idea and the vitality of life is one of movement. And in ourselves, in our minds, In everything that we know, we are constantly becoming from time, from the time you're born to the very time that you close your eyes for the last time. You're constantly, you constantly have the capacity 
to become, to grow, and so forth. Very often our society and our cultures limit that. They tell you you've finished with something, it's done. And then they tell you that it's complete, you're an adult. Now just get married, have children, you know, consume, get a, have jobs. And each of these things are set from something outside you. It's great to have children, you love your family, love doing things for them, but they should never ever become the reason why you do not yourself grow and improve and become in that way. To use that as an excuse is a double betrayal, both of them and of yourself, you know, in that sense. We have to find the way and keep very alive and vibrant that desire to constantly grow, constantly improve. And not ironically, you know, we need other people to do that. We cannot do this as islands on ourselves. This growth for this improvement of ourselves, it is necessary to be in touch and in relation, not only with other people, but with all, all, all creatures, all life, that is on our planet in that way. That kind of, there we find respect and so forth. And at this point, you know, I want to point out this, we often hear about how the light is so much better than the dark, how people want to be in the light, so much so that when people have some experiences of near-death experiences, they see this light that is flashing and calling in some ways. At the same time, culturally, we place all the most negative things about being in the dark, about being ignorant, about you know evil being in the, the part of the dark, about blackness as being something that you do not tend towards because it's dark. You're afraid of the dark in many ways. And yet, if knowledge is in the light, what becomes enlightened, what and there, so long as you're in the light, there is no need to go anymore because you're in the knowledge. The very place from which the new knowledge emerges, the very place of creativity in everything, is the dark. It is the things in the dark that are vague shadows that through our efforts, through our being there and seeking things, that we bring into the light in some ways. So for me, the dark, the unknown, the kind of things beyond the familiar and the way is the most fertile place where I can find the possibilities of my improvement. And I think that this is so fundamental in a way that we understand that we are constantly becoming. And it is in that sense, no matter what your degree is, no matter what your station that is given to you, is that it's never a complete thing in itself. Each of this is just a beginning. Every stage of it is a beginning and it matters very much about how you take that and where you take that in a lot of ways. And I must say at the same time that this is different for all of us in different ways. There is no path, a singular path that we can follow, so therefore there is no formula. There is no 12 steps, you know, to improve yourself. No, because we live in conditions that are unique to us as individuals in a lot of ways. It's a singular kind of thing that there is that in order to improve and to go on that journey in that way, we do need other people. 
And that is the base, in a sense, of that kind of brotherhood, that sense of humanity, that sense of humanness in a way, where there is an incredible amount of charitability, but the charitability is not of the powered sort of I've got a lot and I give to you. No, it is a way in which we need one another in that sense. As much as I need other people to improve who I am, I do know fundamentally that it necessarily also translates into other people need me and others. Therein lies something that, Oli, you mentioned in the sense of the idea of humility. It is so easy to speak the word humility and we know that it is a great thing to do or to have. So it's a wonderful character trait. But I looked at that and I found how difficult it is to be, to, to seek and become that humility. Um, in our society, in all the kind of things that we live in, it is the most difficult thing. And what is it? How do we do that? How do we get there in some ways? And what I found after a long time is that to move along and improve along on that journey of you, that itself is a journey. That it cannot be done without something called empathy. Empathy of the human conditions that we all face and which is the very cement for that reaching and understanding of other people. And also of that kind of empathy that bonds with and feels together with and feels for, you know, all the kind of sufferings of other people, including yourself. But then it's not just sufferance, it's also the happiness and the good things that is there. And so in that sense, I see in our, our total humanity waxing you know, with all the good deeds and waning sometimes by the atrocious things that happen that we are capable of. And understanding this and having empathy of that kind allows us to be able to reach that stage of not having that absolute, you know, kind of judgmental position, um, but also allowing us to be humble in times when other people or others, where things that come to us that might be offensive or hurtful, because the sense of humility at this level takes into account the complexity of the world in which we live and makes it difficult to say with certainty that this is absolutely wrong or this is absolutely right in some ways, on which our egos can very strongly condemn one you know, and you know, praise the other. So part of the kind of thing of humility, together with you know, um, the sense of feeling for other people, um, there is also the sense of trying to come to terms with our egos, trying to rein in that ego, because without that, without, without that control and lessening and lowering that ego, it is very difficult to learn. It is very difficult to move ahead and improve who we are, because after all, you know, if my ego is blown up, I'm there, I've arrived, you know, I'm powerful, I've got it all in a sense. There's no need to humble myself in a way to say, after all this knowing, 
I still know nothing. After all this knowing, I'm still not wise, and I always, I'm always seeking it. There's something about that, you know. There's something about this improving till the day you lie, you die. Something infinite you know, about it. And if ever this type of thing, you know, that's that's within us, that that idea of always moving, always changing, never, never being absolutely comfortable with where you are and what you are at that time. Therein lies the sense of infinity, that sense of always that moved to move, you know, in a kind of way. And for me, that is important. And it's important. I see it from the time we are children. I see it in young people. And it, you know, I see it in, in uh, sometimes I'm saddened because it's been switched off. You know, in, with some, with lots of people, especially within the kind of cultures in which we live, within the social, material realities that that takes away a lot of our sweat and labor. There, I sometimes am saddened to see the switch is off, and so when they go later on, when they retire in some ways, and try to turn to find that self. There's very little of it that's left to work with at that time, so that's tragic in a way. And so, therefore, for me, every attainment is just a beginning, you know, in that sense.、Mm. I, I like that, and, and I think、um, you know, with this, these type of discussions, we can go down in so many different、um, rabbit holes. You know, whether that be politics or、mm -hmm. religious. Um, you know that that's that self self improvement and getting better for generations, if not lifetimes. But、um, you know the one the one thing and the reason I think I wanted to have this discussion is, despite the odds and despite everything. So you know, as a backdrop, the era that you grew up in was the era where your mum was a domestic worker. You know, you mentioned the word shack, but that was literally the dwelling. Mm -hmm. You know that you grew up in,、mm -hmm. and yet for some reason you have this inherent need to be better, and this inherent need to be,、um, to have a caring approach towards other people, to see from their perspective, to help you, you know, to to almost like understand how to treat people better. And what I want to do is is kind of try to understand that. You know, where did that come from? You know, what sparked that? With the hopes that anyone listening. And、uh, you know when I when I think of like Kiara and Tristan, these are the type of chronicles I probably want to leave them. This is the type of legacy. These are the stories. And you know, you mentioned some of your your comrade friends, and I say that you know from a political sense. That、um, I would love to hear their stories. You know, where does that come from? You know, because it's so easy. It doesn't matter which generation you belong to. It's so easy to be disheartened with everything that's going around. You know, in your lifetime. You know, in this time right now, and it's easy to say, "Yes, I'm going to work on my self improvement when I retire, or when I have more money, or、mm -hmm. when time allows for it, or during the holiday." And it never works that way. <laughs> you either love it or you don't, and、yeah. you either have a plan or you don't.、Um, so I'm, I'm really curious to unpack that. You know, where, where did that start from? You know, like, you, was there someone like Ingrid had in the form of you <clears throat> that? Inspired you to do that, you know, like, and 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 I think if I take that even further to ask, 
How do you keep on that journey, even where you are right now, where you're constantly trying to be better and trying to find that, um, you know, that reason to be better and to look at humanity in a certain way? That's an interesting question, Oli, and um, kind of, I hadn't thought about it in those in, in that way, but I go back to a sense of my childhood or when I was a child, but I think there's something about childhood that is common across the board, whether you're born in the lap of luxury, whether you're born on a rubbish heap. I think that there is something even there that we know um, not just amongst those that are obedient, but also those that are not so obedient about things, the good, not so good, and so forth, is a natural sense of justice, a natural sense of when something is, even if it is misconstrued and mistaken, but there is the sense of injustice that allows us to, to feel bad about things, to feel hurt, to feel chastised, to feel, to feel unfairly treated. And there's no parent that has not experienced a child who feels that they've been hard done by, you know, in a lot of ways. It is that sense, I think it is that sense that is fundamental. It is the keyhole to understanding that essential nature in humanity that responds to the idea of justice and injustice. It is not just an idea then, it is a material feeling in all of us. That sense, that sense in itself, because when an injustice is felt, it is a point of intense discomfort. And that discomfort is the is, is the point, is the cataclysmic point of that movement, that search for putting it right or making it right in some ways. And this essential notion, you know, this idea of, you know, doing things, becoming better, improving in some ways, and it's recognized that it is one of what I call one of the cosmic riddles, the cosmic jokes, if you might, if you might. You know, Dickens talked about the jewel and the rubbish heap, you know, in, in, in some times. And others have talked about, you know, that despite the kind of conditions you might, wherever you are, there is a possibility to change, the possibility to grow. And no matter how hard the material conditions of people's lives, in that space, they live all the whole spectrum of life from birth, childhood, young adolescents, adolescent teenagers, <clears throat> young adults, having families, going through all sicknesses and, and disease and raising children, all the anxieties of that, <clears throat> and move through to later times of their lives and old age and disease, sickness, and death finally. And that is not exclusive to any one group. Whether you're in, you know, you're high up on the social hierarchy, or way down at the bottom, there is all that. And that, in a kind of way, that's lived amongst other people, always, the material conditions <clears throat> for us to improve who we are is there in the same way. 
In fact, sometimes it is a whole lot more difficult for people to make that kind of personal improvement <clears throat> when they have it all, you know, in society. When it's difficult, it is so much more difficult to find that need for other people at the kind of level that will result in and give all the promises for that self-improvement. So a lot of times I think that when, you know, when, 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 this, I, when this notion takes off, there's a great degree of freedom, the ways in which we free ourselves, maybe not from the social conditions or the economic conditions that are imposed by others, but we free ourselves from the restrictions that it has within our minds, within ourselves, the way we think about it. When we, when we extend the horizon of possibility in, in how I feel and what my passions might be and how I control and how I deal with things, I think those are ways in which we free ourselves internally. And is that freedom that we give ourselves and make for ourselves, I think, together with that sense of justice and injustice that allows us to move socially, personally, individually, and therein begins our journey, our true journey of ourselves. We are all travelers, we are all traveling along, and very often I have found that I found shelters along the way when I was in my family, when I was in school, and when I was in jobs, and everywhere, or groups of friends, you know, every stop along the line was a shelter, shelter from the storms of life, if you may, but allowed us the warmth, the friendship, the social interactions, the social intimacies, all of which, all of which sustained us, consolidated us, made us grow strong. But very, more often than not, it had to, at some stage, prove inadequate. And then you have to move. And so you move, and each time from one shelter to another shelter, until finally, for me, the only home that I know, in a sense, the only home that I've come to be acceptable, that, is, that has this infinite possibilities of travel, is the whole of humanity. It is that sense here on this blue globe, you know, a blue planet, that, that is the ultimate kind of horizon. But I do feel that there's something beyond that as well, you know, the kind of journey that we always move, you know, moves us always ahead in some ways. So I think that, you know, those things, those ideas, the ideas of discomfort, the ideas of injustice, and the idea that there is something infinite about moving ahead, which makes, you know, failures, problems, or what is seen as those kinds of things, you know, insignificantly small in the whole journey in which we move. And very often, you know, we learn and grow and have the best possibilities of growth in the most unlikely places. In the most likely places or, or you know, where everything is comfortable and fine and, you know, nothing gives us trouble, it is very difficult to grow there. It is very difficult to find that necessary moment of discomfort to take us beyond in some ways. 
And so I'm grateful, you know, for all the troubling times, you know, the difficult moments. Yes, I think that even despite the kind of injustices from which those emerged, but I must be honest and say that those things contributed an incredible amount in terms of my own journey in various ways. And I think not alone in that journey, but a journey together with a whole lot of people so that I truly had comrades along the way that I'm proud of, that I'm thankful of, thankful for, and have a great amount of gratefulness towards. And so that for me, Ollie, has been the kind of, if there's a movement in some way, if there's anything that helped me move, and I'm glad that it wasn't in that sense, you know, a particular um, um, model that I might have had, because I think what had happened is that by not having a model that I could emulate, I got the sense of the infinity of possibilities and the keen notion and confidence that comes from my own agency. It's not an absolutely low alone agency because there's no such thing in our journeys because we are dependent, interdependently on our people. So it's not an absolute self-agency. But that agency that I have to chart my own my own path, if there's a path. And the moment I step on the path, it is, it is erased behind me because it's not for anybody else to follow in those steps in that way. So I feel strongly in a kind of way that, that these stories in some ways, you know, are there, um, but what it brings out is the possibilities and the caliber of what is of where and how we can move. And if we can move as individuals, we also move as a people. And we also move as a humanity. And for me, always, there is that sense of, because humanity is diverse, it is different. There's so many of us you know, that are species, that are life itself, the cultures, the languages, and the feelings are so diverse. And it is that diversity, that incredible set of differences that allows me to move, to improve. Not the sameness, it is a difference. And you can see from that how different is the culture that we've come up with. All our cultures, all our languages, everything tends towards sameness. Even when we have to pass certain standards, reach certain, you know, grades, you know, within schools and all our institutions, they are fundamentally based on sameness, yet our movement is dependent on that notion of difference. It's sad, but I wish and I hope that someday we will realize that we do not make sameness the primary objective of our societies, that we make difference the primary objective. Because that is when, that is the way we can truly reach out and find the humanity and humanness and the human race in a way that would help us, that we need to make that movement, that soulful movement in this world. Hmm. 
I like that. I mean, uh, and I think I mean, that's, a, that's a whole discussion on its own yep. in terms of diversity and, um, and how we can almost like appreciate that, you know, to, to get better. Um, but I do want to unpack the little, you know, the, the piece around that, that almost like that higher level of social consciousness, because that's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, what, what we've said in many, many ways, I think, throughout this discussion. And, and if I had, um, you know, Kiara and Tristan and, you know, Gomori had to pass down some of that, how would, how would they do that? Or how would they have a much more, you know, better understanding of that? Is there anything that you would almost like say to anyone listening? And, and I think, you know, on the one hand, we don't really want to dictate to people how mm-hmm. they should live their lives, because as you said, you know, there's diversity. But I'm a firm believer in the campsite stories, mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, where, where generations, you know, like the stories that, that our elders told us are the stories that we almost live by and we guide our own journeys. And I like your story and I like your story from mm-hmm. the perspective that I think from an early age, you somehow found that higher level of social consciousness. Is there anything that you would say from that perspective, you know, to anyone listening and and, you know, I use Kiara and Tristan because, I mean, these are the type of things I would, I would love to be able to pass down to them, you know, from different people saying, you know, yes, you, ch- you chart your own journey, you chart your own life, you do all of those things. But, but don't forget, you know, that there are, there are ways, you know, that you, that you can do this or there are things that you must consider. Do you have anything around that? Yes, I think those are good questions. Those are good points, Ollie, and I think, and I agree with you very strongly um, because I think it's a vital part of parenting, not just of a father and mother of their children, but a parenting that all adults in a community, a responsibility of such parenting we have for all our children. And I think that it's that is vital. It reminds me of it reminds me of how I came to self-consciousness and political consciousness, a social consciousness. I was about 16, 17 years old, and I was coming from church, and a class friend of mine uh, asked me to told me about a prayer for clemency that was being held in the Natraj cinema in, in Mirbank in Durban. And uh, I didn't know what clemency meant. I had no idea of what that was about, but I did understand what prayer was. And he seemed to think, uh, my classmate Vasudevan seemed to think that, you know, something I would like, um, close friend of mine in school. So I said, okay, I was on my way to my sister's, you know, in Silver Glen to spend the day, turned around, took the inner circle bus and went to Mirbank and at Natraj at cinema. And I go to the cinema and it's, you know, all the lights are on and there's people sitting in the aisles and the place was really rocking, you know. And uh, on stage were people I didn't know, but then at some time the MC started. And first of all, sitting in a crowd that size was a first in my life. And so that was, you know, um, eye-opening in, in as well. Never had that kind of experience of, you know, a force of a mass of people. And then on stage, you had Fatima Mir, you know, uh, Natal Indian Congress people, and a whole lot of people out there that were introduced. And 
I had no idea what those organizations were, and I had no idea who these people were. knew nothing about them. And then they were talk, you know, they talked. There were about six or seven speakers that came up to the mic and gave uh, lengthy talks. But there was something about that. I didn't understand all they said. But there was something about what they said that I caught in that moment that resonated with so much within me, in a sense. It was almost as if they were reading me. They were articulating me. They were speaking the things that was inside me and out that way. And I found that, that was incredible in a way. I, it, they understood. It, it made me aware of things inside me that I was not consciously aware of. That began my bond. That, that began my moment. That became the moment in which there was a consciousness outside the world in which I lived. It took me beyond that boundary, in a sense, and took me a place that was dark before that, you know, for me. And there started the kind of consciousness, a kind of look, the very idea of what is a community, that strange thing, which I never heard of before. I had to start with, well, what is a community? What is, how is it different from a society? What is a, what is a nation? In a way, that prayer for clemency was the, ten, the first decade of the Robben Island prisoners. And it was a prayer for clemency for release of all the prisoners on Robben Island, Nelson Mandela, Robert Zabukwe, all the whole host of them, people that I never heard of until that moment. But I did have somehow in the middle of all that, a sense of justice, a sense of injustice, an idea of virtue, an idea of truth. I think those things are in all of us, those ideas of virtue, justice, truth. And that was where I heard stories from outside. But there was something about those stories as well. Some of those stories were way beyond me in the kind of way, in the very telling at that stage of my life, I could never do that, you know, in a sense. So stories are important. But I think that the stories, the most important stories are the stories that, that pull out, that evoke the emotion, evoke the social truth, evoke the human quality, evoke the human essence in the children themselves so that it resonates with their own stories. They've got to see their own stories, their own selves coming out of it, or else stories for the sake of stories, why bother? Why bend my ear on your personal narrative and stories unless it has this kind of effect, it has this kind of purpose in a way? So for me, I think that, you know, the question's an important one, but we have to be conscious about how these stories, you know, resonate with the stories that our children are living today. That turns us back a full circle to speaking and knowing and wanting to know teenagers, young people today, you know, 
to know their conditions, to know their stories. So if I tell stories about anything, you know, it's already because I've heard things from them in that way. So when I tell stories, if I tell of, of something that happened in the past, there's so much that happened, but I select the things that resonate, that connect with the things I heard coming from them, from their stories in that way. So I think those stories are important, but I think we need to be selective about how we tell those stories and what we connect them to so that we stimulate the agency in our children. Does this make sense? Mm, it does. It does. And I think, I mean, it, it resonates from the perspective that people don't like to be told what to do. And I think especially young people. So when you're saying these stories, it's very easy for them to dismiss it and say, but that was your time. That was yeah. your generation. Right. <laughs> and what relevance does it have yeah. to my life? Um, and then I, I suppose with that, this is, as you said, you used the word agency. There's a certain amount of arrogance, maybe ego with that as well. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I think people, you know, like, I, I don't know where I heard this, but it's, you know, they said people listen when they want to. And, you know, there's, you know, like sometimes, uh, and, and sometimes the guide appears when you need it mm -hmm. you know, or, or, yeah, I need them. And it's kind of the same thing. And, you know, for me, it's just telling the story and whether it makes sense right now or it makes sense in two years' time, I think people remember it. You know, I think if they had to be completely honest about it, you know, they would remember it and they'd say, yeah, sure. I remember, <laughs> yeah. I remember they didn't yeah. mention it. I chose the other part and that was all cool, but I do remember the story. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, or fortunately, I mean, like, you know, there's no cookie cutter you know, system right. to this. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but uh, there's two other questions I want to ask uh, that are strong in my mind. Mm -hmm. Is um, the one is I think it was quite easy, or well, not easy, but it was uh, it was mm -hmm. definitely possible for you to be that inspirational, you know, role model with many of your nieces and nephews and maybe young people. Um, you've now got a teenage daughter of your own. Um, is it easier or more difficult to be that inspirational role model? Oh God, it's more difficult. Uh, I think that uh, I remember reading a you know somewhere a story that you know where other philosophers came to Plato, you know, and um, uh, at least to uh, Socrates to teach their children, you know, because they couldn't teach their own children. Um, so it's an age-old, it's an age-old kind of, you know, um, problem in a sense. But it's not really a problem as well. Our children don't, our children don't need us to teach them things. Our children need us to be parents. That's all. But there's something else that's fundamental about the ways in which our children relate to us and their trajectory and their journey involves us. Our children cannot be themselves unless they symbolically bury us. They need to get out of the law, the authority, the kind of thoughts, the kind of images that they might have of their parents to find their own feet. And if the Oedipus complex was, is anything at all, it is precisely about that. Because so long as you are a child, 
and and you have this father and mother figure over you they are the law in that sense and the only time that you can that enables a lot of things gives you a lot of warmth there are a lot of benefits in that but there are also many disadvantages of in that in that it impedes your own journey in a way and so with my 14 year old daughter i am happy in the sense that she taught me very very early in the stage that as much as i you know was drawn to children and spent so many hours with them great you know enjoyable hours but i was never a parent to them at that time i was an uncle i was you know a person around there an adult that they found so easy to play with but my daughter taught me that none of those parenting things that i knew about previously mattered one whit in this instance and i've learned that my daughter i quickly cottoned on to my daughter has the greatest possibility lay in my daughter teaching me how to be a parent if i paid close enough attention to her she showed me how to be a parent through what she needed from me as a parent so my stories it's it is you know the stories that i might have to say about but you might watch this in a podcast and um, you know and learn you know it might impact on her in some ways vicariously you know in some ways but not directly directly i expect and i would be proud of the fact she would resist any kind of teaching coming from me in a way and as much as i might feel kind of bruised you know in some ways or the other but i must still see how necessary it is for her to find her own feet in things and not and not be um and not be you know undone in a way or, or you know i can't find the word you know um not be held back maybe you know this is i could find another word for it but not be held back because of the shadow that i might cast in that way so i think it's important in terms of my daughter in terms of my nieces and nephews you know in terms of me being an inspiration you know i only know about that now you know not known about it anywhere along the line you know in that way all i know is that i enjoyed time with them i enjoyed and wanted to grow with them in some part of their lives that is all and i'm, I'm always grateful for them sharing their life with me in that way and it was and also the fact that they were able to share it with me in a way that made up for the absences of time when i was not there all the time but as to being an inspiration or a model of any kind never a thought in my mind anywhere along the line and it's something that upon reflection and they did not have this i think even at the time when they were young in that time of their lives this is a narrative that comes from now when they 50 years old and you know up there um but that doesn't lessen the impact that i've had in their lives and i'm glad for that impact but that impact is a very type of thing 
that other people have had on my life, the humanity I needed in order to move and grow in this way. And I am grateful that my nieces and nephews saw me as that human being, you know, who has contributed in a little way to their lives and their growth and their improvement. So I got to put that, that inspirational story that my nieces and nephews talk about, I have to put it in that context of our general need of human beings in order to improve and grow in ourselves. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure many parents are applauding that, <laughs> the, the fact that you said that because yeah, being a parent is, is quite difficult, you know, from that perspective. Uh -huh. And I think there's a certain, um, certain level of almost, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely different in terms of how children relate to you. But uh, at the same time, as you said, you, know, you grow from the experience and mm -hmm. uh, I, I think every parent would agree with that because I think children teach you different things that you never knew even if, you know, about yourself. Mm -hmm. So it makes you a, a better person. Um, and I think being a parent is completely different to just being a cool uncle sometimes, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, someone said jokingly, but you can always give them back, you know, <laughs> as a parent, you can't, That's so, um, you know, so I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I, and I think, um, we spoke about this, I think over coffee or tea, mm -hmm. but, um, we had this interview with, a, mm -hmm. uh, one of our episodes for another show, um, with a psychologist in New Zealand and he mm -hmm. works in worked with in the correctional services uh, department with hardened criminals and he said you know the one the one commonality with all of them was they always said there was no one that was stable around them that showed that almost gave them that trust or, or showed that recognition that they could be better and i think if anything you know that's probably what you gave you know, those children at that time if any you know like if it was that it was just that inspiration that actually you could be better and Sometimes it's just about trusting or, or, or having that, um, that belief that they could be that, you know, that they could go to university, that they could find better jobs, that they could move out of their communities, that, that you know, that they could be, um, they could be able to support their parents better. Because again, it mm -hmm. was one of those timeframes where, where, you know, parents in many communities or many families, you know, weren't that well to do. Mm -hmm. So it was always mm -hmm. the children that almost mm -hmm. like made that standard of living better. Sure. So I think it was that aspect. Um, mm -hmm. But I think you answered it from a parent point of view as well, mm -hmm. uh, which is amazing. And then I think the last one that I had um, that I was thinking about was more, what's the next steps? I mean, I think when you reflect back, and by no means is it the end. Mm -hmm. uh, we spoke briefly about maybe having much more of these um, chronicles or stories, you know, mm -hmm. from other inspirational people, especially during the, you know, like I'll call it the movement or during those difficult times, you know, during apartheid and mm -hmm. stuff like that, because they all have a really cool story, you know, mm -hmm. just like with mm -hmm. your story, you know, coming from, from an era where you didn't know any better, but it was something as, as simple as let's go pray for clemency. Mm -hmm. And it starts this journey of the spark. And I think mm -hmm. when you speak about friends of yours or colleagues or comrades, mm -hmm. um, they all have similar stories. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice for us to tell those stories and, and pass it on. You know, I'm sure their children or their grandchildren probably have never heard those stories mm -hmm. in those ways. And it'll be a, an amazing way to give back. But for Uncle Mori, what do you see? I mean, like going forward, is there anything that, that you still need to 
to to check off or do you still need to like looking forward to i'm sure i mean natalie takes the time right now <laughs> but is there any any thought around that i think there might be you know i think that this um the idea of sharing um i believe that you know when i find something good and valuable it only is good and valuable if i can share that with somebody else something good and valuable in a way is never it is not of the nature to keep to yourself so i think that that is pertinent here in terms of the experiences we have and um, you know the world that the world that has slid into the world that we have now and uh, in which many of the things of that time remains has a presence in the present so i think that a, a sense of you know um conversations i think conversations are a marvelous way of um of both remembering um the past and um in the ways in which that past has a presence in the present and the conversations about this past present um that has such great possibilities and significance for how we grow and where we go in terms of time so i think that it would be wonderful to have you know many of the comrades that you know that we work together with meerbank and so many projects and so many programs of that time i don't think my family my brothers and sisters they know nothing of that and so um I kind of just went to Miamang and I did things there and I came home late at night you know it wasn't things that we talked about or anything like that there was nothing secret about it there was nothing dang you know overly dangerous about it and it wasn't it wouldn't get us into trouble you know in 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 the way that some other kinds of actions would have um but still you know my parents and my at least you know, my mother had a sense of that you know of what i was doing and was always incredibly supportive my my brothers and sisters no they did not and there was a time there would be a time for talking about that and having those conversations my time in south africa these last few weeks uh, last couple this last couple of months involves some of that and you know where my sisters and i never knew you know about some of these things and it's great So I think that those conversations and it would as Oli uh, as you said you know the different perspectives this is my perspective the sense in which I grew and I grew and they all we grew together you know we grew as as and I look at pictures that were taken at that time we were scraggly children that just came out of high school you know and you could see in our faces and bodies and levels of malnourishment and all of that but from that from the from those humble beginnings i think we did something significant if it did not change the world but it changed us so fundamentally it freed us so fundamentally it allowed us to grow that we grew in doing things together we grew together and i think that is the that is the fundamental nexus of that growth we did things together and in the doing things together we unconsciously 
grew at an extraordinary pace and level. And um, so there's something about that praxis that human encounters and you know volition to do something together and the possibilities there not just to get right or to do something that needed to be done but around that there's this enormous kind of possibilities that it offered and the capacities for us to grow in the way in which we grew and even when we no longer could keep those projects going and those things had to split up and we had to you know go to different paths disperse like seeds in the wind. But everywhere we went, every one of us in a kind of way, did things and worked in ways that always held up, in some ways, made a flowering of that time we had together. So when I meet them now, after, you know, many, many years, there is something I recognize, a recognition of something essential that while they've changed so much physically, but there's some great thing in them that hasn't, that is, that has radiated and has boldly grown. And I, I touch it, I can feel it, you know, that sense of being with people like that, that of that time. But that's my sensibilities of feeling. And I'm sure that with each one of them, they have stories. They might be similar, they might be different, and in the ways in which it moves. And everything in our lives, you know, there is no common, simple, set narrative of everything. You know, life is not simplified like that. It can't be reduced in that fashion. So we have multiple perspectives because the shoes that I put my feet in is not the same shoes that other people put their feet in. And so we walk and, you know, go through lots of things and live our lives. And at the best of times, you know, I would normally say, you know, it was just, it was just that, nothing, nothing major, nothing, you know, great. But I think that something happened in those times and that has, that has a, as an implication for our humanity, our common humanity, the celebration of this humanness that is in us, that for me, especially in this time now, uh, in, in what we are going through in this country, I think it has an importance that if we do not tell these stories, if we do not remind us, remind ourselves of our possibilities of growing in this way, not just materially and socially climbing. There is a fear that something fundamental will be lost. And in that loss, we are not going to see a waxing of humanity, but a waning of humanity. And I think that is why there are, in terms of conversation, I only see this as a beginning, and perhaps there would be more. Mm. Nicely said, and I think uh, I liked all of that stuff. Um, if, if I had to ask one more, um, one more question around, you know, just to wrap it up uh -huh. and just say, um, is there anything around the idea of uh, this higher level of social consciousness, you know, the journey that you've been through most of your life, it seems, um, is there something that you thought I should have asked you, but I didn't? Um, yeah, just to wrap it up. 
I had a thought about the higher level of consciousness. I think that uh, two things about that. Firstly, you know, I think that the levels of consciousness are appropriate and, and are strong. I'd rather use you know the strong consciousness that emerges, you know, at different times of your life and the possibilities of that. But I would like to also, you know, see, you know, maybe put the kind of think of your higher level of consciousness as something that um, that emerges from people's lives that we are able to communicate and 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 uh, access at a. At a level, it's higher in the sense that we have gone through this process, we've grown old through our work, and we have, by old I mean we've grown wiser in a sense. And so our visions are tinted and, you know, um, and, and enabled by all that experience so that we are able to look into our past and what were simple actions that was that we mindfully in, in most cases undertook but when we look back at it we are able to see something more than just what we could see then and the things that we could see that we can see now is such that it you know that it has this higher level of being able to view the most common human experiences. It reminds me of, uh, of an anonymous Chinese po po poem. It's a poet. Of, no, nobody knows. It's an incredible sense of wisdom. And uh, if I can recall the thing, it would be an appropriate thing. He said something like, um, the sun sets beyond the mountains. So, sorry, there was something before that. The river runs to the sea. Sun sets beyond the mountains. If you want to see more, you have to go to an upper floor. The river runs to the sea. The sun sets beyond the mountains. If you want to see more, you have to go to an upper floor. That, I think, has been my experience. At the times that I did and worked and worked with people and so forth, the commonest type of things, the most mundane things, the things that happen over and over again, the river runs to the sea, the sun sets over the mountains. But if I want to know more about that, if I want to really see, then I need to go to an upper floor. I need to use all my wisdom and see it differently in that way. And I think that is the higher level of consciousness of the most common things in our lives. And in seeing it that way, we see the possibilities in simple things. So we don't have to wait for sophisticated moments to be able to act in that human capacity that is of advantage to the collective as well as to the self. Um, in everything that there is around us, there is that, there are multiple, it, nothing is ever one thing. It is so many things at that same time. And I think that's what this higher level of consciousness is and what it is, what, what, it, what promises it has for us. And if you want to see more, go up to an upper floor.
be reflective, rethink, see things that you know you couldn't see before. But thankfully, at this stage of your life, you can see that in retrospect. Thanks for that. I think that wraps it up nicely. Um, and thanks for doing this. I think it's been on, uh, on my list to do it for some time. And I think, especially with the Molding Health Show uh, or the Molding Live Show, you know, it's it's um, um, yeah, it's been a bit slower in terms of me getting the content out. But uh, you know, when I thought of the show, I always thought of having people like you on. You know, to tell those stories and and this particular one, you know, the social consciousness, I think it's quite an important topic in terms of the general theme of, you know, what I want to get out. Um, so thanks very much for doing this. May I say one, you know, one thing before, before we leave, when I first met Ollie, you know, my first impression was in a, in a lot of ways, what a wonderful human being. And in all the times that I have since then, you know, that opinion has grown all the time. Um, he's one of the most wonderful you know, human beings that I have, in my journey, come along. And I am so happy and filled with gratitude to be walking along with him. And I'm so happy also that my niece has found a home together with him in this place. So thank you, Ollie. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. That Thanks actually a means a lot. And I think um, because I hold Uncle Maureen in such high esteem, you know, it means even more. So really glad to have done this uh, and really glad to, yeah, you know, to tell that story. Yeah. So Kiara and Tristan, when, you know, when they need to and when they, you know, at least they have it in his voice, you know, him, him voicing some of that stuff. So, yeah, let's wrap that up. Um, hopefully you enjoy that and then speak to you in the next one. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.